I love that, uh, didn't you? It's tough stuff. Jesus was a revolutionary. Please take that word at the full extent of its implications, revolutionary. Jesus did not die playing a predetermined role in the divine choreography. Yes, God used his death, which is now central to the Christian story, there is no doubt. But if Jesus was human, he had to have been free, completely free to choose his path, and that choice could have easily prevented his death at the hands of imperial Rome. Jesus died not because God had required it from the foundation of the world, but because Jesus shook the trees, poked the bear, questioned the status quo, disturbed the equilibrium, challenged the narrative, spoke truth to power. Jesus died at the hands of the superpower of his day, an empire abetted by a religious establishment filled with fear and slavishly devoted to its own orthodoxy. Please understand that's not an anti-Semitic comment. Jesus did not die at the hands of Jews. Jesus died at the hands of a religious, religious establishment that was filled with fear. Um, the religious establishment is always with us. In Jesus' day, it was present in the form of Judaism. That's not an anti-Semitic comment, but let me read it again. Jesus died at the hands of the superpower of his day, abetted by a religious establishment filled with fear and slavishly devoted to its own orthodoxy. He died because he offered an alternative vision, a new social order. When you challenge the cultural norms of the day, the political narrative, the economic system, the military machine, the partisan loyalties, proposing a completely new social order, they kill you. If we spiritualize Jesus, make him into our heavenly savior only, a divine friend whose power is mostly otherworldly or focused on the next life, we will miss what most animated Jesus' mission. We will miss the real Jesus, I fear. Jesus challenged the social order of his day. Beginning when Constantine co-opted the Christian religion to unify his empire, however, the church has often chosen power and prestige and piety over the radical message that got Jesus killed. In the word of one commentator, the church deliberately chose to worship Jesus, not to serve him. It was easier. This being so, we have mostly failed to understand his true significance. In almost every way that matters, Jesus was a revolutionary. Today's text is a fine example. In just a few short sentences, Jesus challenges two institutions that in his day, no less than ours, though perhaps for, for different reasons, two institutions that were sacrosanct. Family, economy. In a few short sentences, Jesus shows his revolutionary character as he offers a new vision for his new world. 
In her book called Jesus' Family Values, Deidre Good says, most Americans assume the exclusively domestic function and private character of our houses, and we identify the home as a place of refuge from daily work. The pinnacle of the American dream is home ownership, and the preferred home is the one-family house. But these are modern ideas going back only to the Victorian period. The whole culture-crashing debate that we've heard so much about in recent years, the so-called family values debate, can be traced all the way back to 1992. Not to the Bible, but to a political campaign. And Deidre Good makes clear that this now poisonous issue, family values, is something that has been interpreted and maligned for political purposes. The biblical family, the biblical household was not the American suburban house, the two-car garage, the nuclear family, two kids and the family dog, as wonderful as all that can be. The household in the ancient world looked quite different. From the role of women in that culture, to the value of children in that culture, to the consistent presence of slaves in that culture. Even in the more modest oikos, the biblical household oikos, it was not an American household. It looked different. While different from the idealized nuclear family of modern debate, the oikos of the ancient world may have been even more important than it is to us today, especially for the peasant class. In his commentary, Ched Meyer says this primitive system persisted in Palestinian village life. It determined that economic security and stability were bound up in the extended family household and the kinship system. This extended Palestinian family which could include parents and their siblings, full and half and stepchildren. It could include clients brought into the family by other relationships and slaves. This extended household was a necessary institution in the survival, the mere subsistence survival of the Palestinian peasant, forced into the constraints of an economic system that was bent against the poor. Related to all of this, the economy of Jesus' day was essentially a feudal economy. Land was controlled by a few elites, and on top of that, the religious system and the oppressive hand of a foreign occupation put even more burden on the peasant class. Again, from Ched Myers, Palestine was, an, was economically stagnant. And the political economy determined that cultivation was not for commercial purposes, but really it was rather subsistence-oriented. What trade surplus there might have been was not available to the peasants who grew it, but would have been controlled by foreign interests or state monopolies. That these laborers permanently uprooted from their land formed a potential source of instability was a fact not lost on the ruling group. 
Thus, even without the factor of foreign rule, there would have been intense hostility between the common people and the ruling gentry and chief priest. You understand the pressures of the peasant class that they faced in that day. The majority of the crowd that followed Jesus would have been from this peasant class, beaten down by the personal indignation of social status, the religious humiliation of dogmatic demand, the political oppression of taxation and constant threat. And Jesus pictures a new social order altogether. So you can understand why the crowds were allured and why the authorities would have been nervous about the message Jesus preached. Chad Myers notes that while kinship was the axis of the social world, kinship, with all its economic implications, kinship is also the backbone of the very social order Jesus is struggling to overturn. Whoever does not hate father and mother, whoever does not reject the oikos, the household of that kinship system, cannot be my disciple. None of you can be my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. Hating the family order of the day, the economic system of the day, was part of learning to accept a new social order that Jesus was offering. Family, economy, while very different concepts in Jesus' day than in our own, it is difficult to take the message, the life and message of Jesus seriously and not hear the challenge he offered to a first century world and to not hear that that challenge is still with us. His is a new economic vision based on entirely new family values. All are welcome. But Jesus says we have to learn to hate this world, hate life as this world structures it in order to make room, excuse me, in order to make room for all. Family, economy, a new social order called the kingdom of God. May it be so. Amen. Sacrifice. Most folks know about sacrifice, granted at different levels and different depths, but most folks know a bit about it at least. In his commentary on this text, David Luce lists some practical and common sacrifices that many of us are accustomed to making. He says, I know a lot of parents who give up nearly every weekend for their kids' traveling sports team for at least eight years. Saturdays now are like, wow, there's so much time in my life I didn't know I had. He goes on with other sacrifices. I know a lot of career-minded folks who put in long hours in the job they don't love in order to secure their futures or just to make ends meet. And then there are a lot of people that are spending hard-earned money to join a gym or participate in diet programs to get healthier. And how many of us sacrifice in order to make sure their kids are dressed well or have a chance for further education? 
I'm not going to lie, I feel rich. We are done paying with college. Sacrifice. At some point, at some time, you have likely made some kind of sacrifice. But that word is awfully intimidating, I think. We don't make sacrifices without counting the cost, the cost financially or the cost in our time or the cost to our emotional well-being. Some people make lists in this process of counting the cost. Some people create spreadsheets. That would not be me, but I know people that do. Some people talk it through with trusted others to evaluate in order to make quality decisions. Jesus gives us two examples to consider in the text, trying to make a comparison. What's the cost of building the tower before you build the tower? And what's the cost to waging war before you go to war? Jesus suggests that we would never enter either of those two enterprises willy-nilly. Rather, He points out that we would make a plan, we would count the cost, we would consider our resources, and then we would make an informed decision. And so it should be with faith and our commitment to follow Jesus according to Jesus. This decline in the church... It's happening for a multitude of reasons. The hypocrisy found among people who claim faith. The hatred that so often spews from those that claim a God of love. The judgment and condemnation of many preachers all around. The atrocious level of exclusion that some churches practice in order to keep people out of the connections that come with a community of faith. And they exclude on all varying levels. Like they'll say, oh, all are welcome, but not to be a teacher for you or not to be a deacon for you or not to be a minister for you. But other than that, all are welcome. It's either all are welcome or not. But because that all are welcome for most people and not for others is in that litany, I think it's understandable why so many people are leaving the church. We don't have a great reputation, the church. But I'm also wondering if part of the decline in the church has to do with the fact that some folks have actually counted the cost, and maybe they've decided it's a price they're not willing to pay. As we've noted a thousand times before, following Jesus is aggravating. It's time-consuming, it's cumbersome, and it's difficult. Following Jesus causes us to have to evaluate our own heart and our own motives and our own needs and our own desires. And when we do that, we are asked to consider the heart of another, the motives of another, the needs of another, the desires of another. There is a cost to following in the way of Jesus. Self is no longer solo important Others take first place alongside self, side by side, loving neighbor as you love yourself. So what's the price you are willing to pay? 
The trouble is, Jesus has already told us how much it costs. I'm indebted to a professor and preacher who has framed this question not as a cost, but a gain. So I want to offer you some of her thinking around this. Jesus has already told us how much it costs. The cost includes close relationships, our family and friends. The costs amount to all of our possessions, or to put it more concisely, the cost The end price of discipleship is the daily taking up of our crosses and following Jesus. And so if we sit down reasonably and tally the costs, she says, as Jesus suggests for us to do, the only reasonable decision for us to make is to choose not to follow. If you really count the cost, you may say, I'm not willing to pay that price. She points out that this is where the spreadsheet fails. I'm sorry for all of you spreadsheet lovers. Because following Jesus is not a zero-sum game. It's not a question of giving up X family, friends, possessions, and getting why prosperity and eternal life. The rewards are not an either-or. It's an experience of poverty in this life for wealth. I'm sorry, it isn't an experience of poverty in this life in exchange for wealth in the next life. Jesus, his way is a logic of abundance, not scarcity. So I think that's why when we consider the cost of discipleship, we see it in a scarcity mentality and not an abundance mentality. He demands that his disciples leave behind families and possessions, not as an exchange for something better, but as a prelude to something bigger, to the kingdom to which Jesus promises those very same family members are invited to be a part. And in the case of discipleship, the end goal is God's kingdom into which mother and father and brother and sister and spouse and child and friend and stranger are all invited together to live into what it means to be the people of God, the family of God, sharing all of what we have and all of who we are together. So have we really lost anything or have we gained everything? Last week, we kicked off the fall with a big collective, we, us. We're all in this together. We need each other. And I still believe that. But we are made up of a collective of individuals, each one having to decide what price we are willing to pay. And the only way we will know what kind of church we will be together is dependent upon each one of us asking ourselves individually, what's the price we're willing to shell out? We can't know who we are until you know who you are. And when you know who you are and the price you're willing to pay and you join that together with the we that is here, 
it's unimaginable who we could be or what we could do. Don't think of it as a loss. Look what we gain, the kingdom of God right here, right now, kinfolk together, family doing good news, being good news together. I'm so glad Chris mentioned Mac Duncan's gift in his prayer earlier. Last week, we handed out 20 envelopes that had $100 each in them. It's part of this new initiative that we're calling Pay It Forward and is sponsored by a legacy gift from the late Mac Duncan who believed in helping people in need right now. And Mac believed that doing that in the context of the church should be the most effective way to accomplish meeting the needs right now. So he held and is still holding our feet to the fire on this. We've heard from some of you already. We want to hear from all of you how you decided the 20 envelopes that we handed out. The 1st of October, the 1st of November, the 1st of December, we'll hand out more envelopes. And we want to hear the stories come back. I got one text this week from a mother telling me about the experience with her daughter. We were able to help two families in need here in Charlotte with very needed, very specific, and very basic necessities. And my daughter is already asking, who can we help next? This was an awesome experience, and it meant so much to both of us. This church, the mother said, continues to amaze me and helps our family in countless ways. So you see... Counting the cost and giving away turned out to be a gain for this mother and daughter, as she put it, an incredible lesson in being good humans. It cost $100. The gain was a child saying, who can we help next? I like the marginal return on that investment. That's worth a whole lot, and it's a price I'm willing to pay. So let us be good humans who follow in the way of Jesus together, giving ourselves away for the good of the kingdom right here on earth. May it be so. Amen.